The knowledge of the Word of God must lead to Spirit-filled living, which is obedience as the fruit of the Spirit, and all the obedience of discipleship and church building it produces. It doesn't end with information. It ends with, with obedience, action. I'm Joe Durso, filling in for Dr. Bill Mazzella, who usually hosts this show. I'm actually glad he couldn't make it to this broadcast because I want to take this opportunity to share what a good friend and great brother in the Lord Bill is, to take the time out of a very busy schedule to host this this show. Along with being a physician, he's also involved with MedStreet, which is a ministry directed to the homeless. And not only that, but Old Town MD, by which he does medicine the way it was done when I was a child during the dark ages by visiting patients in their home, something that is so relevant at this present time. Now for the message for today, dead to the law and bearing fruit, a fruitful life. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It is, as the psalmist said, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It takes us from this very moment and what we need this very moment. And from moment to moment, your word carries us through the whole pathway of life. You know everything we need and your word is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. Lord, I I thank you for faith. I thank you for the act of trusting you for everything that we need. Now we need you to open the word to our hearts and our minds that we might see the things that are written in there, that we might not impose on the text what is not there to satisfy our own lusts or idolatries, but rather rather to extract from the text the things that you have placed there, that you mean there for our good. Life and liberty, justice and truth and wrath and justice. Lord, I pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds to see the truth that we might better glorify you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the text for today, as found in the book of Romans, I've entitled, Dead to the Law and Bearing a Fruitful Life. From Romans 6, 22 through 7, 4. Romans 6, verses 22 through 7, 4. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, 
though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. This uh, is portion is like every portion really in the in the scriptures is remarkable because it it points us as nothing else in life does like the scriptures. It points us to the saving worth of work of Jesus Christ. It's the redemption, the buying back and the benefits in particular that that has. I mean Romans 5 through 8 the book of Romans itself particularly verses 1 chapters 1 through 12 is a summary. It's a the way they used to call it when I was a kid, a nutshell. At the end of each chapter, there'd be two short paragraphs to condense the whole entire chapter into those two paragraphs. Just as a, a core, a s- summary of what has been, what's being taught, what's been said. And so it is with the Book of Romans. Major, major doctrines just compressed and put into the Book of Romans. So if you get the Book of Romans, you know you you can get the Bible. You know, it's there. You got stories. You got poetry. You have prophecies. You have letters of doctrine. You have history. All of that, all of that, just compressed down into twelve uh, chapters, and the ones that follow. Well, I should say eleven, and then twelve through sixteen uh, are just practical living from those doctrinal books. So in verses 22 and 23, really taking off from where I, I, I left in, in the very last uh, podcast, uh, in verse 22, it says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So the benefit is sanctification. But, you know, this this portion right here in 22, going on through into 7, as in 5 through 8, all begins with chapter 5, where in chapter 4, you, 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 we come into justification by faith alone, that major doctrine. And then out of justification by faith alone, it makes its way into this federal headship of Adam and Christ. That the whole race derives its sinful nature from what happened to Adam in the garden. But each one of us in our own place, in, to a very real extent, make our own mind up, get tempted, and then choose to sin. It's a race. It's passed on, and at the same time, it's an individual choice. And that race, that we're all human beings, all go back to the exact same person, Adam. No matter what people say, and we're not going to spend the time here to go through what happened at Babel, and God put a curse on man for within 400 years after the flood, in which he said, no, we're not going to do it. And they rebelled once again, after, just after the flood. And he just says, okay, fine. You want to rebel again, so now you're going to be racist. No more one language, no more one race, no more one people. Now you're going to be divided up and you can just fight among yourselves. And boy, we've been doing a great job of that for the last 6,000 years. 
well, 3,600 years since the flood. So when we are born, we're enslaved to sin, and we're part of the race of Adam. When we're born again, we are freed from sin and enslaved to God because we no longer belong to sinful humanity, but we belong to the God of righteousness, the God whose righteousness is seen in us who have received by faith the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, who became a man, left heaven's glory, put on flesh and blood, put on humanity, as it were, lived as a man and divine God. And when it came to the time at the end of his some 33 years, living a sinless, perfect life before God, perfect before God, he gave up that perfect life and offered it on the altar as a living sacrifice to atone for the people for whom he died. The benefit we derive as slaves to God, as in this verse 22, is sanctification, which is being called out of the world with all its selfish and sin-sick self-centeredness. Hence, we become like God who intended to make us into his image. It's uh, a little bit at a time. It's a, a huge transformation of heart because under the new covenant, God takes that old heart of sinful, self-centered, selfishness and transforms it into a heart that it's actually now reunited with him in a loving relationship with Almighty God. And while sin still remains in this body, in this soul, in, in part, uh, because God hasn't perfected the worth, work while we live on earth, and there's a purpose for that. We're, we're all men. You know, it's not like angels that never sin coming down and preaching the gospel, and they don't even know or understand what it is to be human. They understand what it is to be alive, and they understand God, and they understand far more than we do. But in the experience of being a human being, can't fly anywhere, don't have powers that exceed ours like we can't even imagine. You know, without that experience, they're not like us. But as human beings who have been redeemed, who are sinful, because everyone is sinful, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we learned in chapter 3. Because we are all sinful, and now we're sent back into the world to share the gospel and to disciple men in the faith is what we do for one another. And we take part in this glorious work that God is doing in what we call redemption or being bought back by the price that Christ paid. So ultimately, the outcome of this sanctification that I'm just talking about is eternal life. This isn't just life that goes on forever. This is the life, very life of God that now flows through our minds and our hearts as we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it is that we, we receive, or the outcome of our sanctification is the impartation, the imparting of this life, very life of God, which is eternal, which is outside of time. Time is created by God. God himself has always been. Don't try to comprehend it. It's impossible. Because all we know in this world is beginning and ending. There's a beginning for everything. Where did it all come from? The child asks as he looks at what his father says, there's a God. Well, where did God come from? Well, the truth is the true God never came from anything. He's eternal. 
life of God flowing through the veins, so to speak, or through our souls is eternal life, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we belong to this eternal God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the verse that follows 22 before we get into the main part, which is chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 for this podcast, this, this verse is it's as dynamic as you're going to get in Scripture, which is, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Kind of another way of coming at what he just said, in, in a different way, adding color to it. Said another way, the wages of sin is death. The payment or penalty of a life lived in rebellion toward God who created us, but to whom we want to give no honor or obedience. The payment for that is death. Death is separation from God, who is the source of eternal, eternal life. There are people and demons who will continue to exist forever who will not partake of eternal life. They will be cast into the lake of fire. Right now, they await that fate in what we know as hell or Gehenna or the the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they used to burn refuse. It's the garbage dump of the world where sinners go, where those in rebellion to God go. And it's separation from Separation from the goodness, the love, the mercy, the kindness, the the very life that is good and holy and righteous, where one person cares for another person more than they do for themselves, which is found in the Godhead. As the Father gives all glory to the Son, and the Son, in loving obedience, goes to the cross for the Father, and the Holy Spirit is just kind of quietly working with the Father and the Son and acknowledging the Father and the Son as almost as if that's all there was. When there is Father and Son and Holy Spirit and a world made to live eternally, whether it's demon uh, angels who never sin, excuse me, or men who have been redeemed from their sin through the redemptive work of of Almighty God on the cross, in, in either case, that life is that kind of loving life. There will never be sin in eternity in heaven. In the lake of fire, that's another story. There won't be sin like we know it now, evil against each other. There'll be too much pain and suffering for any of that. But within the hearts of those who live, there'll be only sin. And then this verse in 24, 23, concludes the wages of sin is death, the penalty of sin is death, but the free gift The gift of grace from God is eternal life, which is to live live in intimate union with Almighty God. And so the verse concludes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It's given. Happy birthday. Give a gift. Oh, how much do I owe you? It never happened. Nobody pays someone for a gift. It's a love gift. It's given freely. There's no charge attached to it. 
And that brings us to chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, in which starts with this word, or. <laughs> or. He's going to fill in the blanks. He's going to fill up the picture, giving us a picture, and then talking about that picture. Or, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? And then he uses this marriage picture, and he says, for the, the married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then while her husband is alive, she, if she gives herself to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress if she gives herself to another man. This portion is not about marriage. This is the Apostle Paul taking a person from what they don't fully understand, and he's then bringing them to where he wants them to be. He's taking them from this picture of marriage, where in the law it says that adultery is cheating, doing something with a person that only belongs within the marriage relationship. Within that relationship, there's intimacy between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, two who are bound by covenant, promise that they will give themselves to no one else. If the woman gives herself to a man while being married to another man, it's adultery. It's breaking the marriage vow. But, and this is the whole point, death ends that part of the law. There's other illustrations that could be used, but this one's the best. Why? Because it has to do with being bound to someone. And that's why he's using it. And so when he goes on on this other part, and this is what I want you to concentrate on, not, not the the intricacy of adultery and marriage. That's not what the point is. The point is about the law and being under the law and being bound to someone. And that's why he continues and he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law. See, he's not looking to a partner being put to death. He's looking to you and me. The person who's a Christian, who is under the law and bound by the constraints of the law that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. By us being put to death breaks the bound, bound that would binds us to the law. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, we might bear fruit for God. And I like this in the New American Standard, so that you might belong to another. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, be joined to another. Some translations will be put married to another. That's not the word in the original Greek. The original Greek, the word has to do with joining. It's actually the creation of something new. So when, you, when we were once old, when in the flesh, in sinfulness, we're now joined to Jesus Christ. We're bound to him. First of all, we're free from the law. 
which doesn't mean free from being good and the goodness that the law expresses. It means being freed from the condemnation of being under the law and having broke the law. That was broken because Christ died on the cross and upon the cross he carried our sins. If we've been repentant, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, if we're trusting in him and him alone, and that my good works have nothing to do with it anymore, I'm condemned. And now being bound to the Lord Jesus Christ in this new relationship, like people are bound together in marriage, where two become one in flesh, this is really taken to where it's meant to be when we're bound to Christ. Because he takes up residence within our, in this body, in our soul, and, and works his life through us. This is life in eternity to perfection. Where it's, for I, for I am crucified with Christ, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is life the way it's always meant to be lived. This is this is man made in the image of God through the sacrificial work of Christ, through sanctification, and here's the big word, through identification. Identified with Christ, placed into Christ, in the mind of God, in the soul of God, if we want to say that, in the heart of God, in all that God is, we are there in Christ. And that he does no longer see us, but he sees Christ. And in this position, in this place, we're freed from the law in order that, this is a big in order that, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's where the fruit comes from. The fruit comes from God. We're joined to Christ. Christ lives in us. Christ wants to put his thoughts in our mind, his life in our heart, his love in our heart. And in that intimacy, now we're really living. Now, now it's not about me. It's not about any other Christian. It's about what Christ is doing in us. I mean, this is the real heavy, weighty part uh, of the love of God, of what God is doing in believers. Once upon a time, there was a, a zoo. And in this zoo, there was a bear who was locked up in a very small cage. And all he could do was take five steps forward and five steps back. And this he did for his existence in that cage when he was in the zoo. Then people in the zoo decided to, to build him a giant area where he could roam around. Plenty of space to stretch his legs and, and feel he wasn't free, but he feel more free than in that cage. And the day finally came when he was moved from his cramped quarters to an area fit for a bear. Upon being placed in the open area, he walked five steps forward and five steps back. Uh, until his previous experience no longer ruled, but he was overruled, his new living reality. So his living reality was an open area, but he just he was locked into his mind that all he had was five steps forward and five steps back. And I have to tell you that to some extent, all Christians, that's where they begin. They begin locked up in a cage, a cage which we know is the law. And uh, battle as we might. We, we battle to get freed from the law. And that law, the devil can use in, in many very, very subtle ways, so subtle that we might not even see them. The errors range from a wrong type of activity to just 
passivity and do nothing. And in history, it's like a pendulum that swings from one extreme to the other. Pendulum has shifted from uh, back in the 70s, early 70s, where man was saying much of let go and let God. And don't work and you know, no, no self-effort. And there was a, a, a good chunk of that in, in Christian teaching. And then over the course of time, it shifted to spiritual disciplines. And so it's not so much about letting go and letting God. Men started thinking, you know, men are so heavenly minded and no heaven, no earthly good and sayings like that, that the shit's slow, but over time just shifted over to, you know, you need to apply these spiritual disciplines, you know, pray, read the word of God, you know, witness for people, attend church, blah, 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 and all of these, which really are fruit of the life that I'm trying to explain of what the Apostle Paul said today's lessons from uh, Romans 6 and 7, where life is the life of God. It's a life of faith. Faith is given by God. It's accepting this life, and from this life it bears fruit. And the person who bears this kind of fruit wants to pray. And he prays because he wants to pray, because he loves God, not because it's a means of getting to God. And the same is with with attending church, having fellowship with Christians, reading the word of God, witnessing to other people, whatever it might be that people call Christian disciplines, it it actually, when you know it's the truth is, it's actually the fruit we bear through the very life of God. God's desire and his will for us is that we might go into all the world and make disciples. His will being lived out through you and I, when it's natural, that's what we do. This is what we'll do for all eternity, exactly what God wants us to do, and we will have the maximum amount of joy and love and reciprocal love from others. Why? Because God's life is just that. God's life is not sinful. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It doesn't seek its own. Just read through 1 Corinthians 13, where it's applied there to the misuse of gifts. It's true in every area of life that God is, is the, the principle of God, the love of God, the person of God, is this, unselfish, unself-centered. The life that brings glory to God is the one lived out in the spirit of Christ. Revivals in history tell us this tale of, the, of life in the spirit. If you want to watch, listen to something very important, and I'll mention this from time to time, it's is, is Revival on the Isle of Lewis. Go on YouTube, go to the Revival on the Isle of Lewis, and you'll see a black and white picture with a man with a collar, re- religious collar, and he's standing between two old elderly women. And he gives a depiction, last name Campbell, and he gives a depiction of what took place on the Isle of Lewis, Wales, uh, between 1939 and 1942. Just a little summary But you understand, first of all, the humility of the man, and you understand the dynamics that when revival happens, God comes down, and he revives people's heart. Anyone who gets saved experiences revival. When he does it in multiple numbers and in multitudes of people, now you're talking about revival in the mass. You're talking about when God decides to do something special, something bigger than he normally does. During all normal times, the individual is left to seek God in prayer, see life lived apart from any self-manufactured holiness, if there could be such a thing. 
Furthermore, we learn that living in the Spirit ends the lie that completeness in Christ is the result of information alone. Did you get that? We learn that living in the Spirit ends the lie that completeness in Christ is the result of the imparting of information, as if that's all it is. The knowledge of the Word of God must lead to Spirit-filled living, which is obedience as the fruit of the Spirit, and all the obedience of discipleship and church building it produces. It doesn't end with information. It ends with, with obedience, action. The knowledge of the Word must lead to Spirit-filled living and all that it produces. Secondly, and these are key points in what Paul is teaching in this, in this section, is passivity accomplishes nothing. The just shall live by faith. Such a life of faith is not lived on one's back. Titus 1, 10 through 14 says this. For there are many rebellious people, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> For this reason, reprimand them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths, commandments of men who turn away from the truth. I snicker a little on that because we can't judge any man's motive. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Titus, uh, is the one who said that, that we, we judge nothing before the appointed time. And when that appointed time comes, we'll give all praise to God because he will the one who will judge the motives of our hearts. Until then, the heart is off limits. But he's making kind of a blanket statement that people would criticize right now, and he's looking at these people uh, who are of the circumcision, and he's saying that these people must be silenced, these false prophets who are teaching uh, dishonest gain. And one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so there's a category of people there. Well, this category of people, he says, this testimony is true because that's what rebellious and deceivers and empty talkers do. They do this. They, 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 they lie. And they do it for their own personal gain. And the point I'm kind of focusing on here is lazy. Lazy gluttons. They just want to fill their face or their pockets or whatever it is with dishonest gain off the backs of other people. They want to lay on their backs and they just want to cheat everybody out of what they get. That's kind of a passive approach to life. And passive approach to life is no good than working all you can to get holy. Neither way is good. Activity in the flesh is no good. Passivity is no good either. Being lazy is no good. Building a church takes a lot of hard work. This work is given to the whole church as the New Testament is written to the whole church. Not all the church is hard working, but it should be. Elders and shepherds are not, as I once heard a pastor say, as I once heard a pastor say, uh, an elder is a cut above. 
cut above what? You know, <laughs> the, the blood of Jesus, which re, re, represents his suffering and death, was shed for all. And all are responsible to the blood that was shed on the cross. One of the greatest victories the devil ever won was to separate, set apart the church into two classes of people, gifted elders and only members. From this division, are we to understand that some people are so gifted that they can fulfill their calling? Some will say to me, what calling are you referred to? Well, the calling to go into all the world and make disciples. To make a disciple is first to evangelize and bring a person to Christ, which is to tell them the gospel. And then discipleship is the maturing, which means you teach Christians, you teach people, having evangelized, shared the gospel with them, what that gospel means. Just what I'm doing right now. So I want to understand that only certain people have received the commission to disciple people to maturity. Let's, let's just think about that. I'm going to try to refrain from sarcasm, which is a little difficult for me because I understand the scriptures to teach, and it teaches to everyone who is born again, everyone who's committed their life to Christ, everyone who's been bought by the blood of Christ, and lumping people into categories almost seems real. It's almost inescapable because there have been great men who have been great teachers and great preachers. I'm not undoing or trying to do any of that. There are selected men who are extraordinarily gifted. I don't know that that gifting is just due to their brain power or some special gifting. I think there are other reasons that I could go into which actually lead to humility. My, my son, when he was 16 years old, he, uh, he got involved with a girl, and she was actually a pastor's daughter, and he gave her a little bit too much of his heart And uh, when she broke up with him, and there wasn't any foul play or anything, but um, he, he, he hurt emotionally. And the two of them hung out a lot together at church, mostly youth group and navigators. That was really big part of that church. And in navigators, I mean, there was just always a lot of scripture. So thankful for the, the youth teachers in that church, and in, particularly in navigators, that poured over my son and all the youth there with so much scripture. And uh, he cried and cried for a couple of days after breaking up with her. And then there was this change that took place in him. And he said to me at one point, you know, Dad, I, I think I realized what happened. And I said, what? He said, well, when I was, you know, seeing, seeing uh, you know, this girl who he knew then, and he, 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 uh, he, he just wasn't as lit up <laughs> for Christ and the gospel until he broke up with her. And he was communicating this to me, and he, he gave me an illustration, which was, I was kind of like a glass filled with a balloon. And the water was coming out of the faucet and pouring over the glass. And when he took, sand, uh, took this girl away, he popped the balloon and the glass filled up with the water, which was significant of the meaning of the scripture that just filled him 
because the idol had been taken out of his life. And that's a picture of what a person who is not bringing forth necessarily 30% or even 60, but 100%, maybe not all his life, but a person who for that time when he's filled with the Spirit, which should be all the time, um, they're bringing forth the, the fruit of being emptied, of being broken, of having the idol popped out of their life so that the filling of the Holy Spirit can fill them to the full. And they experience the blessing. Now, I think that's closer to what God is looking for in disciple makers, in people who are giving their life to Christ, to lead others to Christ, to disciple others to Christ, to teach as we have been instructed to do all the things that you have observed from me. That's all part of the Matthew 18 passage to teach. How can you teach what you don't know, and how can you know unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Which is why in 1 John, he begins the chapter with two paragraphs which basically look at who Jesus Christ is as a person and the relationship we're meant to have. And in that relationship, there's cleansing from all the sin. And at the end of that chapter, he he opens verse chapter 2 with, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The cleansing takes away the guilt of sin and in that guiltlessness, in that place of closeness to Christ, we are given power to be obedient. And in that obedience, we then are bound in love to Christ. And then at the end of chapter 2, in verse 27, John writing says these words. As for you, the anointing which you received from him, which you received from him, abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you abide in him, remain in him. Now does that mean that God didn't give teachers and that no one is to teach anyone else? Of course not. What that means is no one can teach anyone else anything as God does. I mean, I can quote the scripture. I can give the meaning of scripture. I can try in a very meager way, and I don't mean that with any false humility. It is meager compared to what the Holy Spirit does in bringing the truth to a person's heart and mind. When the Holy Spirit brings a truth to a person's heart and mind, now teaching is taking place. Now knowledge is coming to light. Now people can understand. And we need to distinguish very carefully between the part that we have which is to point people to the Scripture, to quote the Scripture, which the Apostle John didn't have, by the way. All he had was the Old Testament, which is Scripture. And he was able to disclose to these people the truths that we find it hard to get out of the New Testament, which is a much clearer written word as to what took place after Christ came. It's in the Old. It's hidden in the Old. It's there. All you have to do is read it, and if you're of a mind of of God, you'll see it. But in the New Testament, it's like right on stage. It's not a shadow of things to come, like in Hebrews. It's it's the very thing themselves. Christ is on the cross in the New Testament, not just in Isaiah 53 and passages which kind of obscure, but clearly state the Messiah that was to come, the Savior that was coming to the world. So what am I saying? 
I'm saying without the Holy Spirit, there's no teaching that can take place in every person who's born again, who's regenerate, who has been given a new heart and understanding and relationship with God, has that ability to do, to do just that. Not men who just attend school. Not men who get $10 words to explain what slaves understood in the first century. I'm talking about all Christians are responsible for the admonition in Matthew 28 to go into all the world, make disciples of all men, teaching them to observe all things that I told you. And I have all the authority, by the way. The authority is given to me, that's Jesus Christ, to send the Holy Spirit to do the work of making people born again from above and to teach them. That, it's God who does this. Men take part in it and thank be to God for the part that we're given and the part that we will be held responsible for one day. And so what I'm teaching here is very clear. If you're a member in a church, you have far more responsibility than you, under, than you understand, probably. That the people around you or the people, they're not going to hear it from the pastor, most likely, uh, unless you bring them to church. And your responsibility goes far beyond bringing them to a building. Your responsibility is to bring them to Christ. Your responsibility is to know how to share the gospel. You can go on the web and there's probably a half a dozen things right in, in, in on the web that you can come to from evangelism, explosion, to no place left, and on and on. Basic ways of, of helping people to understand the basic understanding of the gospel. And, and people go to church to, to, to learn and really what you need is a person to disciple you, a person who understands the, the things like I'm teaching right now. And we're all responsible to learn these things and to share them with one another. And if we did this as a church, as a whole, rather than a few people who are very, very well trained, I suppose, because training ultimately comes from God. and God trains people according to how they're broken. You empty a person, you take away the idol, and they're going to understand what's going on. They're going to understand real well what's going on. Bring a person to a classroom, teach them things out of the Bible, who's unbroken and instead of humble, proud. And I, I don't care what good the teacher might be, human teacher, they're not going to get it. Understand these things because these things are the practical application of what Paul is talking about in Romans 6 and Romans 7, where he's explaining that we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace because we've been united to a person. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Go out and bear some fruit for God, not because you graduated from seminary, but because you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart. And when you open the scriptures, if you're broken, if you're cleansed because the, the blood of Christ means more than just doing what you want, but rather doing what he wants you to do, then learn the scriptures, share it with someone else, share the gospel, Share the truth of Romans 5 through 8. Share the whole that you can in a discipleship relationship with someone else. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the truth that all people, that the ground is level at the cross. There may be people who are gifted in very special ways. Men like uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had a spectacular memory. A man who, who became a, a great doctor in England, who gave it all away in order to share the gospel in a simple way with other people, who discipled many people from the platform that you gave him. Lord, the platform you give is the platform you give. How faithful we are to do with what we have received. That's another matter. And all of us alike who are saved have been given, I don't know about the platform, but have been given the Holy Spirit who, who, who teaches truth like no man can. If we would just be in that right place. I ask for all the hearers of this would really consider their lives. Consider the responsibility they have to humble themselves in a way like Peter did when he realized he had denied Christ after three years of walking with him, after having been given the keys to the kingdom, having been given responsibility in a future tense, and then he just denied Christ. And out of the mourning, out of the brokenness of that, he was made an apostle and a teacher, and a pillar, and a foundation of the church. Every person needs to be tested. We know that, Lord. Test the people who hear this, if you haven't already, and make their eyes be open so they may not know the truth, so they may know the truth and live the truth out from day to day. We ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name.